Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. We live at an amazing time in human history, full of peril and possibility. Our guest today is focused on the possibilities of this moment. Kimberly Weichel is a social entrepreneur, educator, and cultural bridge builder with global experience. She's a passionate champion for women's leadership, as well as a teacher, trainer, mentor, and speaker. She is also a friend of mine. Today, we'll be talking about her new book, Uncovering New Possibilities, Insights from Our Time. It includes a range of potential new directions for individuals as well as society. Kimberly Weichel, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you, Eleanor. I really appreciate you inviting me onto your show. I'm so excited about this conversation because you're always doing such interesting work. And I enjoyed reading your your latest book, uh, which is just full of rich topics and explorations for all of us now as we're kind of reflecting and moving forward from this pandemic era. But uh, before we get into the current book, you've written several books fairly recently. So for our listeners who have not yet read them, could you just give a brief overview on what was the journey that led to these recent books? Well, thank you, Eleanor. And I'm delighted to share the journey because it's been an interesting one. Uh, So I've had some remarkable experiences during some interesting times of history. My husband and I lived in Cape Town, South Africa for five years from 1975 to 1980 during the height of apartheid. And I worked in a number of ways to work to build a post-apartheid society, one of which included working with a team, a small team, a lawyer, uh, journalists, and a few others to prevent the apartheid government from uh, demolishing a large squatter community on the outskirts of Cape Town called Crossroads. Uh, Like in many areas, the rural areas were poverty stricken, they couldn't find jobs there, so they had to go to the city to find work and they had nowhere to live, so they lived in these tin shacks and yet the apartheid government was threatening to demolish it. So we stood up to the government, we had this large scale campaign that went on and on and they eventually agreed not to demolish. And so, I mean, there were many, many stories, many things I did over the course of five years that were uh, foundational for me in my peace building journey. Secondly, I've been a citizen diplomat with uh, Russia, and that was the former Soviet Union. My first trip there was in 1986, and that was very moving to me for so many reasons, and I decided to go ahead and lead three citizen diplomacy trips. I really believe in the motto of citizen diplomacy, that when the citizens lead, the leaders will eventually follow. This is, of course, a Margaret Mead quote, and the the foundational principle behind the citizen diplomacy movement. And then, uh, and that was to build bridges of understanding between Russians and Americans. And I found it very, very moving, and I found a core cross-cultural principle, which is that our similarity are always greater than our differences. And then in the early 90s, when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart and it was a very tough time there, um, the organization I worked with, the Center for Citizen Initiatives based in San Francisco, uh, really worked on a number of large-scale programs, uh, training entrepreneurs to jumpstart the Russian economy, many programs that I worked on over a period of a number of years. So those were some very meaningful experiences. And then a, a third example, is my work with an organization 
focusing on the great law of peace. And this was the Iroquois Confederacy constitution that really helped these previously warring nations live in peace for over several hundred years. Uh, they are in northeastern United States. There are six Iroquois nations. Uh, they were warring until a man who was called the peacemaker came and brought the message of peace to them, uh, including a number of things like checks and balances, like the role of women in, as clan mothers, like, um, well, a number of components that really kept them living in peace, bringing the good mind and so forth. And so this great love peace actually was foundational to the founders of our country. And this is a story most Americans don't know about. I've seen pictures of our founding fathers meeting with Iroquois chiefs and being able to uh, share with them the principles that got written into our constitution, some of them like checks and balances, unfortunately, not the role of women. Uh, and the clan mothers were foundational for the suffragettes. They were an inspiration for the suffragettes as a practical example of women who had had a strong leadership role. Um, and the, the great law of the Iroquois Confederacy really was uh, also very inspirational for the founding of the United Nations as an example of a, of a meaningful union that lasted in peace. So I've had these experiences and friends said to me, Kim, you really ought to write these down. You know, you've had some interesting experiences. You've seen history from different vantage points. You have a sort of backstory. And why don't you write them down? So I started writing and basically never stopped. And in addition to these, I've had other life experiences. And my first book called Beyond Borders, I also wrote about some very personal stories, adopting a 12-year-old girl, uh, the death of my mother, which is very important for me, very difficult time, um, my, my spiritual journey, a number of personal as well as professional experiences. And it was a journey of self-exploration. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed writing that book, how much I learned about myself. You know, when you look back over your life, you see choices you made, where they led to, what came of them, how much wisdom you've gained. And so I really enjoyed writing that book. And out of that enjoyment and the, the learnings from that book and the message in sharing with others, which is everyone has a unique story to tell. And I encourage everybody, encourage your listeners to take the time to write your own story because we all learn from each other. So that then led me to write my next book, um, the first book was published in 2016. My next book is Our Voices Matter about the importance of citizens being engaged in a democracy. It's important we all have both the opportunity and responsibility to speak up about issues that are important to us and to keep our, our officials accountable. Uh, and so that was also a remarkable experience to talking about some of the core issues that I care deeply about. And I included in there organizations that people could go to, for example, ending violence against women or climate change, where they could get involved if they chose. So out of these two experiences then, when the pandemic hit last March, I thought, you know, maybe it's time to write again. I'm wondering what this pandemic and this really unusual, which has turned out to be a world-changing, life-changing experience, will be meaningful for us personally and collectively. You know, are we simply gonna endure this time? Are we gonna change? How has it impacted us? And it's raised so many questions. So over the past year, I really explored more deeply and 10 chapters, a number of issues that relates to what we're learning from this time and how we can e emerge from it. So I think that's in a brief background of those books. Yeah, that's a good background and a good context for this current book. And um, 
I am curious. It's a very wide ranging book. It covers a lot of territory as your life has. And uh, it just in general, I would say it's it's a really interesting read on the possibilities of this moment for us as individuals and for all of us together as society. It's like, how do we want to choose to move forward after this kind of national and global stand in place for a year uh, for a lot of people? So let's talk about kind of what you are focusing on in this latest book. What are some of the lessons and the new possibilities that you see coming out of this time for us as individuals and, and for our society? Well, there are many, and I'll just summarize a few, uh, Eleanor. Um, what, first, I just want to say, you know, what's interesting is that when we think about it, but even three years ago, we couldn't have imagined living through something like this, to live in our homes, to be a, uh, couldn't travel, couldn't meet with our friends. None of us could imagine, and yet we've all done it. We've all figured out how to do it. So the question is really for each of us is, what else can we do that we couldn't imagine doing? It's really a great thing to ponder. Um, and this has been a shared global experience of profound magnitude. So I'd say, you know, firstly, we need effective leaders. We need leaders who take care of their citizens, who listen to scientists and health professionals, who take effective and bold action. We did not have that, of course, with President Trump. Uh, we've had that with women leaders, and we can talk about that because there are some remarkable examples. We've seen how his many missteps has hurt this country so dramatically, and we need, in a crisis time, you need to have strong, um, effective action that uh, does not dismiss evidence, that does not uh, shy away from testing because it may raise the numbers of, of the virus cases. It was ridiculous, so many of the missteps that really hurt our country, and I think it, it made the virus so much worse. So obviously, we've learned about the importance of good leadership. Um, we've, we've also seen, because any kind of crisis like this points out the weak links in our society. We've seen, you know, we all know about the inequalities, but it's really pointed them out very starkly. Economic inequality, racial inequality, gender inequality. I mean, people of color have experienced the virus so much worse in so many ways economically, and many more have died. And so we, it has brought it to our attention. It's almost like having a health crisis when we have a symptom that we might avoid because we think it's gonna go away until we can't, and then we have to pay attention. And that's kind of what's happening in our society. These inequalities have been there for centuries, and many of them, and yet we now, they're, they're right in front of us. And I do think the Biden administration is working on some of them. But it's also pointed out weak links in our social safety net. You know, unlike other industrial nations, we don't have a national standard for paid family leave or sick leave. You know, it's ridiculous despite public support for it. So we need to have a national standard for, for paid family leave to take care of, of sick family members. We need to have a healthcare system that is not tied to employment. So if you lose your job or you move to a different state, you don't lose your healthcare. You know, and we need a national plan for sick leave. Um, and the irony is that the very people that we needed most, some of the healthcare workers, some of the nurses, some of the, the service people, uh, didn't have sick leave 
And so they had to go to work even if they weren't feeling well. And that ended up perhaps spreading the virus unintentionally, of course. So it's, it, it actually doesn't just hurt them to not have sick leave, it hurts all of us. So I think these things have really been put in stark focus. I also looked at a couple of sectors. I'll just mention a couple. Uh, one is the, it really interesting, Eleanor, the whole issue of aging in America, uh, the whole retirement mo model. You know, the retirement homes were an incubator for this virus. They spread through it very, very quickly. And that was partly because of mismanagement in some cases, because of poor regulation in some cases, and because a lot of the workers work very long hours. It's hard work and they don't earn a lot of money. So it, it was, you know, a, a situation that was not well managed. And now over uh, about people over 65 will double. The number of people over 65 will double over the next 40 years. We are an aging society. We are living longer. So we have to deal with this whole issue of aging. So that's a sector that is, you know, I looked at it. Though of course, we have the, the village network around the country of ways of aging in place. So that's you know, a way to, to deal with it, but not everybody can do that. Some people need more help than others. So it really pointed out a lot of, a lot of different issues and looking at, at mental health issues for our students. You know, students' um, brains aren't fully developed and they don't have the problem-solving skills that a lot of adults do. And so it's caused depression and anxiety throughout the society, but certainly in students. So we need more mental health counselors when students go back to school. So a lot of things are being pointed out now, and yet it, we see we're all in this together. We are in it together. And as you mentioned, some people are getting hit a lot harder. Uh, than others. So I appreciate you expressing how uh, it's been a differential impact depending on your economic status, your race and your age. You know, the older people really got slammed with this COVID. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm curious, you mentioned in terms of dealing with the pandemic, clearly uh, President Trump was a colossal failure in terms of addressing it successfully, helping to keep people safe. We had 600,000 Americans die from the pandemic. Uh, it's now coming out, by the way, one of these recent books about Trump, that his administration was planning to send out 600 million masks, you know, two masks for everybody in the country, until someone put it on, an HHS uh, employee put it on in a meeting People started laughing at him because they thought it looked silly. And Trump like put the kibosh on it, and they canceled the idea of giving everyone masks. But can you imagine if early this was like in March of 2020, if people had felt the government was behind it, it's important to do, uh, you know, here are your masks. It would have made a huge difference, oh, as well my as God. testing. You know, the idea that he poo-pooed testing because it would increase the numbers was so ridiculous. It was the exact opposite of the step. Right, exactly. And it's just so deeply sad, and we must learn from these missteps so we don't make them again. Right, and uh, as you mentioned in your book, a lot of women heads of state when faced with a similar situation of the pandemic in their country, actually dealt with it really well. And uh, talk a little bit about like, what were some of the women leaders doing around the country over this past year and a half as we were grappling with this global crisis? Well, there's a great article that says, what do countries that handled the virus 
best have in common women leaders. <laughs> and so there's been a lot of uh, research about these women leaders, starting with New Zealand's uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ahern, uh, who took bold and decisive action. But she she listened to the scientists, she listened to health experts, which one should do, of course, and she quickly moved into a lockdown mode. And she also went on Facebook Live posts, and she was empathetic, which is really important in a crisis. She appealed to people to say, this is going to be tough, folks, and we need to do it because we're in this together. She appealed to children. She spoke directly to people. They hardly had any deaths in New Zealand. Now, granted, it's a small country, but these kinds of steps of believing the scientists, Angela Merkel from Germany, a scientist herself, also took bold and decisive action. So I think it's both believing the science, taking, moving quickly to take the difficult steps. These were difficult steps to put people in lockdown. Nobody wanted to be locked down, but it was the only way to curtail the virus, as well as the empathy and the caring and the listening that went along with it. These are core uh, feminine, I call them feminine leadership skills that are very much needed, not just in a crisis time. We saw a number of women leaders from Iceland, from Denmark, from Norway, from Sweden. Of course, the Scandinavian countries are always, it seems, on the, the leadership <laughs> you know, level. But they, they took good, uh, positive action, and it means their country really didn't suffer like we have in many other countries. So you have to be honest. We have to deal directly. We can't dismiss it like Trump and other uh, sort of authoritarian leaders have done. Uh, we need to listen to the Tony Fauci's and the people in the know. We don't drop out of the World Health Organization at the very moment when we have a global health crisis. So it seems like he took all the wrong steps, which definitely hurt our country. And so women leaders are, uh, are you know, absolutely been on the forefront of dealing with this crisis and, and responding to the needs of the people. I think they've done a great job. Yeah, fantastic. I totally agree with you. And by the way, hats off to the women of Scandinavia. I uh, always, yes. <laughs> I went up there a couple of years ago. They was invited to speak at a conference celebrating the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote in Scandinavia. They were just, you know, some years ahead of the United States on that. And I was like, oh, I get a chance to talk to these women who are like, they're always number one in terms of the status of women in the world. Go to the Scandinavian countries. And by the way, I asked them, I said, what do you think was the most important factor for the Scandinavian women to kind of leap ahead? Because at some point we were all fairly similar, I would say into the 1970s even. And they said once they got childcare, affordable, quality childcare, that freed them up to work it, and it freed them up to be engaged in politics and civic life and freed them up to run for office. It made possible all the other things. And then once they went into civic life and government, they used that to expand all the other things like the they have a gender budget. They review their whole budget according to how does it impact the different genders. So this it's, is a very big issue, Eleanor, and it's one. It is. I, it's hard for me to imagine that we're still dealing with this. That women have always been and are still 
the ones leading childcare. And that really hampers people from stepping in leadership. We know that leadership takes time. It takes working evenings. It means traveling. And it's very hard when your priority are your kids and you don't, you perhaps have a partner who's helping, but usually the primary responsibility is on the women's shoulders and as well as our elders. And this remains so. Now, granted, moms and kids, I know I'm a passionate mom uh, and, and I feel very strongly about trying to be a good mom, but I like to balance that with the leadership work that I do. But it's very hard. Childcare is expensive. It's not always the best. One doesn't want to leave your child with a less than good quality daycare in a situation. So these are real issues that have, have one of the many barriers that have you know, held women back. Uh, as yeah. well as I think a lot of a lot of uh, feelings still in this culture of sexism and that women are just gradually now. I mean, we are getting into leadership at all levels, which is the good news, but it's it's still way behind where we should be. Right. And, you know, I graduated from college in the 1970s and we thought, OK, we're on the front edge of this wave of the new women's movement. And we thought in our lifetimes, we we're going to knock down all the barriers to equality. And we did knock down a lot of barriers and women got good educations into politics and government, into business, into leading nonprofit. We were definitely making great strides, but we kind of hit a plateau at around 25 percent. Uh, if you look across the board, whether it's presidents of the universities or members of Congress or uh, CEOs or high level in business, it's it's around 20, 25 percent at this point are women and still 75 to 80 percent men. So we kind of got to a certain place and then it's been a little bit uh, stalled, I would say, for for many years. And I do think childcare is a big piece of it. We saw that in the pandemic. A lot of women had to leave their jobs when the Absolutely. schools closed, the kids were at home. It was the women again. And when you said the key word, the men may help out, but yes, it's, help they're in help. Help. Yes. it's not like babysit the kids. Yes, it's not their job to do <laughs> exactly. it. It's women helping out. So the mindset is still very much there about it. So um, but at the same time, we've never had so many women in leadership in so many areas. And you issue a wonderful call for women to leadership in your book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, why do you think it's important now for women to be stepping into greater leadership and how do you think they can do it? Well, a number of reasons why I think more women should be in leadership. One is that women's life experiences is different that we develop by being moms by uh, through our own uh, abilities have developed certain leadership skills that are really important in the workplace, in the political arena, at the community level, at all levels. Uh, there's certain what I call feminine leadership skills, which are beyond empathy and compassion. We, we emphasize partnering and collaboration, working together. We emphasize team building because we know that the best decisions are made by diverse teams, men and women people from different backgrounds, communities, and cultures. We need that diversity to make the best decisions. And so, uh, and the ability to, to lead teamwork uh, 
It means we we're inclusive. Women know what it means to be excluded. So we wanna make sure that we're inclusive, that we include all the key voices. We're also, as I mentioned, relational. We really care about and developing relationships. We have an ability by and large, you know, to listen well, to see other people's point of view. And these skills are really important. Um, and, and women bring a set of skills that are invaluable. In fact, there's a lot of research to show that when women are on boards of directors, when women are in leadership roles in companies, the companies are more profitable. This is not a women's rights issue. This is more of a sustainable issue. Um, that, that women bring these qualities that are more deeply caring, that are ability to listen, that are very helpful in decision-making. We are able to multitask. We are, we think both short and long-term. There's so much emphasis on short-term thinking, but as we just saw with this building that collapsed in Florida, you know, we have to think both short and long-term, otherwise there are indeed extra expenses. So trying to cut costs in the short-term to save money isn't the best in the long-term. And women, just like the, when the principles with Native Americans is thinking about seven generations to come, we have to think more long-term. So women bring a lot of these skills. Another reason why I think women are, it's so important to have women in leadership at all levels is that women have a, a sense of tension before it erupts into conflict. I've done a lot of work in the field of peace building. Uh, women are typically the ones leading civil society organizations at the grassroots. They know the key players. They know the roots of the conflict. You can't solve a conflict unless you understand the roots. And that's why 50% of all peace treaties fail within five years because not all the stakeholders were involved. Women are at the grassroots, but they're typically not at the peace table. And unless you have the key stakeholders, women know the key players, they know the issues, and you can't have a peace treaty unless you've dealt with the roots of conflict. And so, you know, they bring these skill sets that are invaluable at all levels. And so, I mean, we're also half of the population. So if we exclude half of the population, how can we expect to have well-managed companies and excellent decisions, we can't. So there's, uh, and, and we know that companies are more profitable, as I mentioned, when women are in leadership roles, as well as we know that the uh, amount of gender equality in a country is determinate of the well-being uh, uh, or the ability to thrive of that country. So the poorer the level of gender equality in a country, the more likely it is to not uh, be thriving or not doing well. And so it is a key indicator of success. So for so many reasons, they, it is really important to bring women into leadership on an equal basis. And at, at first, when this started happening, it was tokenism and, oh, we have a woman on the board. You know, Of course, what she listened to was another question. But now it's not just sticking a woman there, it's having a enough representation and really being listened to to make a difference. And we're seeing it in all the research, uh, which shows this over and over. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I'm all for it. I've been, a, a, like you, a champion of women's leadership uh, here and around the world uh, for since college time. And I, I remember when I went to Yale, we had about five men to one woman when I started Yale. And I had a conversation with someone which kind of baffled me. And then I said, oh, they think that a woman can't do that because she's a woman. 
And I laughed. I thought that was such a preposterous idea because my mother raised the four of us and worked full time starting and running a travel agency. So uh, it never occurred to me that women couldn't do everything. I was like, where did that idea come from? But unfortunately, as you mentioned, that idea is still very much alive. And uh, we just had Carol Gilligan on this show a couple of weeks ago wrote the book in a different voice and has spent 40 years studying the different psychology between the the girls and boys and the women and the men and what are the roots of this uh gender divide in roles because it's not how we're born and that i found fascinating that men uh, or boys when they're born are very emotional, very feeling and in touch with those feelings and talking about them. And girls are, you know, have a lot of the so-called masculine traits, confident speaking out. Uh, and, but then when they hit adolescence, that really drops off. So you did a whole chapter in your book about the, these gender roles. And I, I'm curious to hear what is your perspective on how do we start out all of us as whole human beings, but then particularly around adolescence, we kind of get shoved into these gender stereotype boxes that we get stuck in for the rest of our lives to the detriment of us as individuals and to the society who then loses like half the person. What's your take on how that happens? Yeah, very important question, Eleanor. I'm glad you raised it. Firstly, I want to say one of the impediments of women stepping forward, are there many, we talked about the, the prevalence of or the need for childcare, but it's also the idea that it's the zero-sum game, that the more power women have, the less power men have. It's not a zero-sum game. It's a both and, and this is a message I try and repeat, because I think that's one of the fears of men that they feel that, that the more power women have, and don't, nobody wants to give up power. Power is part of this, and we need to discuss power. But, it, but it's very importantly, I want to talk about the socialization of boys and girls, because these are cultural norms, they're stereotypes, they're learned behavior. So we can change this. And I talked a lot about this in one of my chapters, entrenched gender norms. Sadly, uh, we haven't had, sometimes boys in families grow up with poor role models. They see their father hitting their mother. They see their father beating their mother. And this is what they grow up to know. And because oftentimes kids repeat what they learn. Some boys rebel against that, of course, but many without knowing it, they, they embody this is how we treat women. And girls see and they figure this, and, and it is culturally learned. And this violence often starts in the family. And it's very hard, how do you break those cycles of violence? Because these men often didn't learn it either. And so one of the important things is educating boys and girls at a very young age. We need to provide that training in schools, talk about respect for differences, that we're all equal, that uh, we need to listen to each other. And, and these ideas, I think we have these cultural norms that men are tough and strong and women are soft and weak. And we have these mottos, boys will be boys, men will be one. This is hurting men and boys as well as women. It's one of the reasons there's so much violence against women. It's because of these stark, culturally determined gender roles that we must shift in our society. I mean, they're really dangerous. They lead to risky behaviors for boys and men. 
You see this with excessive drinking and wanting to drive super fast and think they're going to be fine. Now we see the rise in suicide amongst men. Why? Because men are trained to not express emotions. We all have emotions. We all need to express them. It seems like the only emotion men are allowed to express is anger, but they're, they, they bottle up they are not encouraged to ask for help because help asking for help seems weak. Men are supposed to be strong. And so these are all culturally determined. And so we as a society can change that by what we do to teach our men and boys. I talk about a remarkable organization in my chapter called Promundo. They're an international organization. They train and educate men and boys. And for example, one story was very moving in Bangladesh after a training where a man said, you know, in my community, it's thought that if you help the uh, your wife with home with housework again, help your wife with housework, <laughs> that you know that you're now a slave to your wife. That's the the cultural mindset, and therefore, because of that, he doesn't help the wife, and he therefore doesn't allow her in to make family decisions with him. But through a training with Promundo, that he realized that that's not how to see things, and that that, it, that running the household is both for both of them, raising the kids is both parents' responsibility. And so he was able to shift his thinking to help his wife with the housework, as well as encourage her to speak up and to listen to her as a, as a voice. So these culturally embedded norms are very strong. They're very dangerous. They're at the root, I think, of violence against women, this power differential, these cultural stereotypes. And, and yes, they're changing now. They are beginning to change, I think, amongst homosexual men. There are more and more homosexual men that have rejected this strong, hyper-masculine, heterosexual uh, thinking. Um, of course, this also, I think, gets into white supremacy thinking. You know, there are a lot of these di difficult uh, norms are still prevalent in our society that are we've got to gradually educate and train so that people are much more aware of others. Exactly right. And, you know, this white supremacy thing is, as we all know, a, a big problem in our country. And the FBI is now calling the terrorist threats from white supremacists as the greatest terrorist threat in our country right now. Uh, and I agree with you. I think the roots are in there and with these trained gender roles and that the boys are you know encouraged to be angry to express anger to be violent even because they oh well the boy is going to have to take care of the family and defend the country so we want them to be tough and strong so they're actually encouraging this anger and violence and and rage but it's also their own, the suppression of their emotions yep. has to come out somewhere. And sometimes exactly. it comes out in rage and in violence because they're all bottled up in there. And, they're um, constrained very much too. In fact, I talk about in the chapter, something called the man box, which mm -hmm. is talked about, there was a large scale study and it's really a box, they're boxed in. So because peers are watching and so the tougher a guy is, the more he bullies, the more he's liked by his peers because that's what the boys think they're supposed to do. And now then you get a president who is the chief bullier and you know, and now people look to him as, a, as a, some kind of you know, leader uh, and they follow suit. And so we have all of these influences, but this man 
sandbox constrains boys. It's dangerous for boys. Our boys, you know, need to ask for help. Our boys need to be encouraged to express their emotion. Um, and so these are kinds of things that we can all do in our society, whether we have boys ourselves or not, as teachers, as neighbors, as friends, is we can encourage our boys to express their emotions in a healthy way, to seek help when they need to. It's okay to cry and so forth. These, these go a long way in, um, you know, in working with boys. And I'll say that Promundo, this organization, really works with fathers as well to retrain them from the role modeling they perhaps had from their own father who maybe beat their mother and left the family to how do you now they don't really know how to become a good father and sometimes becoming a, a good father is a pathway into becoming a better person yeah let's talk about that a little bit because these boxes are are deadly like you said you know for a, a lot of the girls can end up with bulimia and all kinds of psychological, emotional problems. And the boys too, I mean, can lead to suicide. People are feeling so, as you say, you know, boxed in with their gender stereotype and uh, suppressing themselves and not feeling comfortable. Um, so you mentioned the Promundo, which is doing this training. Do they have any training like that in the United States? And can we start with maybe the U.S. Congress and training some <laughs> some of the men in the United States about this? Wouldn't that be great? That'd be, yes, they have an office in Washington, D.C., and they have offices around the world. Uh, they do work in the United States. Uh, I don't know what it, <laughs> a lot of times to take a training, you have the first step is to admit you'd have to learn something. And that is, I'm not sure a lot of our politicians are ready to take that first step yet. But you're right, you know, girls are in these boxes too. Mm -hmm. Look at the pressure to be thin, to look good, mm -hmm. to be pretty, um, to act a certain way. I mean, look at when Hillary Clinton ran. I mean, God forbid she should express an emotion. And we have double standards in our society that women have to have a much higher bar. We have to work much harder to prove ourselves. We have to look manly. Again, these are conditioned by our society. And so it, what is what do we prioritize? And that's why I go back to feminine leadership skills. We all hunger for empathy. We all hunger for caring from each other. Why don't we exude that in leadership? Why do we restrict ourselves and away from the very traits that are, I think, very much needed? And, and so our girls are boxed in. A lot of issues happen. You know, as you say, bulimia, a lot of issues because they don't feel that they look good enough. They're too big. They're, they're not in a certain box. And boys have another box that they're supposed to be in. So we need to, we need to let go of the boxes. We need to see each other as our full selves and to be able to respect those differences. I mean, the good news is there are more differences now. And I think people are really trying to be open to more diversity but you know we've also been trained to to think about others as you know maybe less than ourselves or something and and these, these cultural constraints hurt all of us yeah exactly right um so what's your advice uh to women you think it's seeing the research that's showing these feminine leadership skills are exactly what companies and government needs to kind of lead us out of these crises that we're in. Uh, hopefully that'll help. Um, what are some of the other ways you think that women can step forward uh, in this moment? Well, firstly, 
Um, I'm a big believer in mentoring. I've mentored young women for 25 years as a volunteer. I, part of it is my purpose in life is to encourage girls and women's voices to be heard. And a lot of girls underestimate themselves. One of the reasons women don't run for office often is they've never done it before and they don't know if they can do it. I don't know that men think about, they think, well, I haven't done it, I know I can do it. And so we have to encourage bigger thinking. We wanna mentor each other and coach girls. And I'm, I'm thankful for organizations like Emily's List that help women raise money, that help train women, because there is still a confidence issue, but there's also a childcare issue. Now, I have to admit, I'm going to admit something. When Kirsten Gillibrand, who I admire very much, was running for president, um, I know she has young children. And I caught myself saying, well, how is she going to be a good mom and run for president? But then I thought, well, wait a minute. I don't ask that of men. Right. Am I? And so it was bothering me. It's like, I, I really believe it's important to be a good mom. And yet I want her to run and I want other women to run for president. But it is a conundrum. We can't just leave our kids you know, home alone and finding good daycare doesn't always exist. And we don't have always an extended family that can take care of our kids. So that that is always going to be an inhibitor until we figure out a better way to have safe keeping for our kids. Um, so, you know, so one is support each other, um, encourage more women to run to help maybe take care of their kids while they're doing so. Um, but a part of it is, is a, a confidence boost. And in the mentoring I do, I encourage girls to really look and set bigger goals, not small goals, but to think bigger. Uh, we've now had some great role models. We have a women VP finally, um, and to stand up for what we believe and to speak out. It's really important. And I think more and more girls and women, we're looking at this remarkable Greta Thunberg and some of those Parkland students that spoke up, they feel empowered and that some of the girls are doing remarkable work now. And, but we don't wanna just know them individually, that we wanna encourage thousands more girls to be able to do this, to feel the confidence to speak up and speak out. Right, exactly. And the the poet who was speaking at President oh, Biden's yes. inauguration, like, don't we love her love voice? Her. I can't love wait her. to see where she goes. Exactly. Well, and you know, doing, I agree with you, totally encouraging the girls to speak up and speak out and have greater confidence. And it's so wonderful. We now have more women living longer so after our own children are grown and hopefully launched, um, that now we're looking at women when we turn 50, the kids are grown or are off in college, and, and then we could have another 30 years of relatively good health, a whole new life ahead of us. And uh, you know, you speak eloquently in your book about this second half of life, aging with vigor and grace. Can you talk a little bit about some of the gifts for um, particularly women, but really all of us as we uh, hit the second half of our life? Yeah, it's such an interesting topic. I'm glad you asked that. Um, we're really entering a whole new era now. We are living a lot longer. We have medical, better medical um, advances. We have saved, many of us have saved some resources. 
And so we have an opportunity now, if we've retired at maybe 55, 60, 65, to have even maybe three decades more that we're going to be able to live. And yet we don't have some clear roadmaps. I uh, lead a workshop called The Third Act. So the first act is our growing up years. It's very structured. We go to school. Our second act is roughly 20 to 50, 55, where we're, most of us are working, raising families. And so women aren't as encouraged to dream. And we often put our dreams on the back burner because we're so busy and we're multitasking and we can't even think about things that we really want to do. And now we're entering a new phase and the workshop encourages the women to get back to those dreams that they've suppressed oftentimes and we've rationalized why we can't do the things we've wanted to do because we're so busy and so now is our time and so it is a time of renewal and rebirth in many ways there are so many things that we can do and I think we're each of us you with your radio show each of us are doing things that we maybe have never thought possible and that's what's exciting about this time but we need to create roadmaps and we need to support each other in the journey uh, one of the parts of the third act workshop is it can be very scary for people, women as well as men, when you've had a very structured full life and suddenly at 60 you retire with no plan. Some people don't know how to deal with completely unstructured time. Some people love it. But you know, for those that are, are feeling uncomfortable about is how do we set certain plans in place so that we have some idea of where, what we'd like to do, where we'd like to go. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing is I've sort of been doing some informal research since I'm in this category too, of how are people doing re retirement? Mm -hmm. I don't even like the word retirement because I still teach, I write books, I speak. I'm not earning money doing any of them, but I'm working as much as ever and I'm loving it. But you know what? It's all by design. And it's things that I never thought of myself as a teacher before. And now my husband and I teach at the Lifelong Learning Institute at American University. And so I'm looking at ways people are using this extended time and learning from them. And we've come up with a new model. There are 120 lifelong learning institutes around the U.S. and in Mexico, and we've decided we're going to travel and have working holidays and teach for two weeks or a month in different places and build a sense of community in different areas that you know, call us and being able to enjoy our time doing that. This is and so we each get to make up what it is that we want to do with this time. So um, there are a lot of opportunities. You see women who are 65 running for Congress. You see, you know, women getting on a motorcycle and going off around the country. So many different things. The, the things that we couldn't do before, this is our time now. We're generally healthier. And, and my message is do it now before you can't. Exactly right. I read a story the other day about a woman who was 80 years old and was running for office for the first time. <laughs> so, and these things are possible. Yes. And we're setting role models for each other. So the more you do, it inspires me. It inspires others to do other things too. And so we're, we're supporting each other. This is a ripe time. And while we have great health, while we can enjoy our time, do what calls us. Think big because the sky's the limit as to what we can do, really. Right, exactly. And uh, I have, uh, I think you have friends with them too, Noelle and Bob. They sold their house, bought a recreation vehicle, went traveling around to various conferences and centers for study and learning and workshops and meeting. 
and they're been all over the place, like they're John and Jane Appleseed about helping to build a better America and a better world. And they loved it. And now they recently settled again in Tennessee. They have a house. They're kind of rooted. But they're like, they're saying, hey, we're not retired. We're refired. So, you know, what fires you up and what gives you energy? What do you want to do? And do it now while you still can get out and have the health and have your legs and arms working and get out and do what you want to do. Absolutely. And, you know, and I have found, I I will admit, I turned 70 at the end of this year. I can't believe it. But, you know, over my lifetime, I've gained a certain amount of wisdom. We all do. Now is my time to benefit from that wisdom. You know, we work so hard in our careers to gain experience, to gain knowledge, to do and to earn our income. And now when maybe that isn't the pressure, we have opportunities to share our wisdom. So one of my paths is now writing books because I enjoy challenging my own thinking. But I also want to say that I write the books to inspire other people to share their own thinking, because, again, we learn from each other. And so that wasn't something I ever thought I could ever do decades ago. Uh, Being a teacher with my husband has been very, very fulfilling as well and being able to travel as we do it. So there's so many new opportunities. Look, My message is look around what others are doing, like this 80-year-old. Look at what people are experimenting with and saying, well, maybe I could try that too. Get, you know, have friends that that support you and maybe you want to start an organization. Maybe you want to learn Italian and go live in Italy for a couple of years. There are many ways of enjoying our life and now is our time. Absolutely right. And it's, you know, obviously, hopefully people have the money to do that. When I look at some of the data about what some women are grappling with. Not all women have the financial resources, but you don't need a lot of money. Uh, Just think about what you want to do, get focused on that, get a plan, and you can do it. This traveling and living with the RV, I think they save tons of money kind of living that way. So you can always, where there's a will, there's a way, as they say. And a lot of the uh, older women and men in the second act or the third act here can be mentors to the young ones coming on. You know, I'm thinking people in my daughter's generation, your your son and daughter, they're coming into a world that's got a lot of challenges and they are going to need a lot of support uh, to get through it. So you can always be a mentor and a guide to help encourage some of the young ones coming up so they can step forward and and do what needs to be done for themselves and and for the country and for the world. And speaking of the world, you're on the board of a non-governmental organization called Light My Fire. And uh, you write about how giving small-scale funding um, for nonprofits of modest size can have a lasting influence and a ripple effect on transforming communities that sounds a lot to me like the Muhammad Yunus and um, the Grameen Bank, which a lot of people don't know, by the way. So talk a little bit about what you're doing with that organization to help women and men around the world. Well, thanks, Eleanor. Um, Yes, I've been on the board of Light My Fire for about five years. What I love about it is I've worked my whole career in nonprofits, and I've led a number of them. And the bottom line with many nonprofits is we have to raise money. So I've spent a lot of time seeking money. And it's really 
unfortunate that so many nonprofit leaders spend the majority of their time trying to raise money rather than the very mission of the organization. So for me now to be on the other side, to be able to give out money, small scale money is such a joy. And I, I just love that, that thrill and being able to, to do that with this small group. So we don't have an office, we don't have staff, 100% of what we raise goes to small scale projects. So our belief is we, we give grants of up to $5,000, very small scale, but we can take risks on very grassroots organization, only focusing on women, primarily health and education programs, primarily overseas. We funded a few in Washington, DC, but of course $5,000 goes very far in Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania, maybe not quite so far here. Um, but we read the proposals, they're very simple proposals because a lot of the, the, the people who applied English as their second or third language, we make it very simple for them to apply. We look at their budgets very carefully. We look at who will be leading the project and we go back and ask questions, but we've often never heard of them. The, some of them have nonprofit status, others don't. Uh, and But we make a determination, given how well they've written the proposal, they talk about the need. Um, it's heartbreaking when reading a lot of these proposals, the need is so vast and they're asking for just a small amount of money, but this small amount of money can ripple. So it's almost like the, the EMILY's list that used to stand for early money is like yeast, it makes dough rise, which means if you're giving that spark, you're giving that initial investment, they're then able to utilize that and grow their project to the point where they could eventually apply to the bigger foundations. And, and so, but we can take risks that the big foundations can't. Uh, we've been mostly successful. We've learned a few lessons along the way, but uh, to me, it's the women, again, who are the leaders at the grassroots, the women who are investing in their community, and they're, they're doing, you know, pig raising to, uh, you know, all kinds of farming projects. One of the projects that we funded on a number of occasions is, very sadly, a lot, all girls get a period, get menstruation, but they don't have pads. And it's one of a reason that girls can't go to school because they're embarrassed. They don't have hygienic pro products to to protect them so they don't go to school for four or five days a month. So these are reusable pads that are made in different places. And so we funded a number of those kinds of projects that enable girls to go to school. So I've really enjoyed being on this. It's a small team. We get together every quarter, often drink some wine, review the proposals together and, and make decisions you know, based on these proposals and give out up to $5,000 per project. And it's it's wonderful to read the results when they write us what they've accomplished. That's great. And if some of our listeners want to contribute to this, because I think if your maximum grant is 5,000, any contribution would, uh, would really help, particularly when you go to some of these underdeveloped countries. So how do people learn more about that? They can go to our website, which is Light My Fire Fund, F-U-N-D, Light My Fire Fund, Dot org, and that has a lot about the projects we funded, about the mission of the organization. But it was such a, it's a great story. And so the founder of Light My Fire, Ellen Bonaparte, and I co-authored that chapter about some of the principles that we select projects that are replicable, that we think are, you know, that can be multiplied, where we feel that have a high potential for success. And so we, we, we employ a number of core principles and we've been remarkably successful in our decision-making as to which projects to fund. And then the delight 
in seeing how how important the project has been for the, for the community. That's great. And uh, I, I love that work that you're doing there and helping so many people around the world. Uh, but, you know, this is a, a time of peril, a time of stress, a time of challenge for a lot of people. And you acknowledge that in this book and you talk about how we can find that peace within during the time of crisis. It's like there's so much that's churning around, so many challenges and changes in our country, in our world, in our lives. Uh, how do you recommend that people can find that internal peace during times of crisis and challenge? Yeah, that's one of my chapters. And it, it came partly because of all of us living through the pandemic. I mean, we're all going to face challenges in our life, whether it be a health crisis, relationship, loss of a job, loss of loved one, living through a pandemic. So the question isn't, are we going to face challenges? How do we manage challenge? And how do we choose peace? So we talked about some, some practices that have worked for me and my co-author. We both individually gone through our own crisis as well as the pandemic. Uh, and so one is self-care. How do we take good care of ourselves? In my case, it was taking daily walks, sometimes several a day, to be able to not just get exercise, but to process my feelings, to think about what I needed to say or do. Um, I tried to eat healthy foods, get plenty of rest, but I reached out to other people for support. We don't have to do this alone. So self-care is really important. We often tend to overlook that when you're focusing on a crisis. Secondly, is to avoid overwhelm. You know, when you're dealing with something huge, it can just overwhelm you. You're, you've got fear, anger, hurt, any number of strong emotions. And so if it overwhelms you, it, it, it detracts your ability to manage the crisis. So I recommend to focus on small steps. You know, what can I do today? What can I do next to work on this crisis? Um, I also am a, a spiritual person, and so nurturing our spirit is very, very important. We're all spiritual beings, so how do we maintain our inner core so that we don't get off track? And, and one for me is trusting that things will get better and having faith that they'll get better. Um, being able to read inspirational literature, meditating, journaling, doing yoga. I spoke with a spiritual companion so I could kind of see things from a more spiritual perspective. That really helped me. Um, so those are, are important to have, again, have faith that this too shall pass because it, it usually does. And, and ultimately, as, as the book is, is like, what are, through every crisis, there are opportunities, there are possibilities that come out of it. And how do we seek what we're learning? Uh, sometimes we avoid dealing with a relationship or a health issue or a financial issue until it erupts into a crisis. So that could be a learning as we need to be more on top of our, our personal health and our personal finances so that we avoid future crises. Uh, but it's being able to center ourselves and maintain ourselves and live our values that are really helpful for me in living through something like this time of a, of a pandemic. That's well put. And uh, I, you know, this idea of walking for self-care, my husband and I just have all through this pandemic time, we're lucky we have a park across the street. We walk three times a day. It's a mile around the park. And it's been amazing. And then listening to the birds, like I never noticed the birds before. So incredible. So uh, there are a lot of silver linings in any cloud. So I really appreciate you uh, bringing all of this to our attention and your wonderful book. Um, and that is all the time we have. Uh, the book is 
Uncovering New Possibilities. And our guest today is Kim Weichel. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Kim. Well, thank you for having me, Eleanor. Really enjoyed the conversation. That's great. More to come. Uh, and listeners, in case you missed any of these programs, they're available in the archives. Our theme song is Let's Give Them Something to Talk About, sung by Bonnie Raitt. I'll be back one week from today. Thanks for joining us. This is Eleanor Lacane with All Together Now. <laughs>